Before we get into God's word for the sermon, would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, you promise amazing things through the power of your word, this holy scripture you've given us, that it will not go forward without accomplishing your purposes, that it is sharp as a two-edged sword and that it cuts straight down to the heart of the matter and reveals our true selves to us, that is profitable for everything we need to grow more mature as Christians. So we ask that you would accomplish all those things among us. We, we open it up with great expectation, what you might do in our hearts as individuals and thus in us as a church. We submit ourselves to you. We submit ourselves to your word. Would you fill us now with your Holy Spirit to receive it and respond to it rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. We are in Mark chapter 14. We've been looking at the trees. You've heard that expression, don't miss the forest for the trees. The idea is you'll be so focused on a couple of individual trees that you'll miss the grandeur of the entirety, the the forest. So we've been looking each week at one passage, which is sort of like looking at trees. And now let's zoom back a little bit. We need to think about the book of Mark as a whole to be able to understand today's passage fully. So I'm going to do just a little bit of general work. Now, I hope you guys are feeling like alert and ready to listen to a sermon this morning. I know sometimes Sunday mornings can work against that. Sometimes you stay up too late on Saturday night. Sometimes this is the first time you've sat still all week and you can start to feel a little sleepy, but don't feel sleepy. Deal? Okay. I'll do my best. You do your best. Because this is God's word, and I think it's going to be really good for us this morning. But we do have to do a little bit of preliminary work uh, to understand the book as a whole. So it might help you to think about the book of Mark like a Netflix documentary series. Anybody ever watch a documentary or one of those uh, like true crime series on Netflix? If the book of Mark was a series on Netflix, there'd be three seasons. Okay, the first season would begin at the beginning of the book of Mark, like you might expect, not surprisingly. And it would begin with the first verse in which Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, that word Christ is very important, the Son of God. So Mark's purpose in this book is to portray Jesus, his teaching and his works, his ministry in such a way that you will understand that he is the Christ. Now, Christ isn't Jesus' last name, like I'm Matt Broadway, he's not Jesus Christ. Christ is a really important biblical title. Literally, it means the anointed one, but it, what it means is it's the Messiah, the long-awaited, promised, coming Savior King who would free God's people from their sins and introduce a kingdom that would last forever in which everything would be right. So right from the beginning, that's what this is about. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior King, the Son of God. And in that first season, you would see Jesus doing his public ministry. You would see great crowds of people growing around him who were just fascinated by him. And then you would also see another group grow, which would be Jesus' enemies. These were the religious leaders of the Jewish people, You see, Jesus, as he was doing his ministry and teaching, he threatened their power and he exposed their hypocrisy. 
Okay, so season one comes to a close. You binge watch season one of the book of Mark. And Jesus is extremely popular with the crowds of people. And his enemies are starting to really hate him. Season two starts around chapter 8, verse 29. This season begins with Jesus talking to his disciples. And he says, okay, I've got crowds of people who are following me everywhere I go now. Who do they think I am? What are you hearing? And his disciples say, well, some of them think that you're John the Baptist. Come back from the dead somehow. Or they think you're a prophet, sort of reincarnated and back at work. And Jesus says, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And every scholar recognizes that this is a turning point in the book of Mark. Peter correctly identifies Jesus. You are him. You are the Christ. You are the long-awaited Savior King who is going to save his people from their sins and establish a kingdom that's going to last forever in which everything is right. And from that moment on, everything changes. Jesus' ministry goes on, but he keeps pulling his disciples aside and saying, for one thing, he tells everybody who recognizes that he's the Christ or suspects it, shh, keep quiet about it. Don't go around telling everybody that I'm the Christ. It's not time to reveal that yet. And at this point, too, he starts to tell his disciples about his death. He says, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested by the religious leaders who have become enemies to me, who I'm threatening, who I'm exposing their hypocrisy. They're going to put me to death, but I'm going to raise again from the grave. Somehow his disciples don't understand it. We look back with hindsight, it makes sense, but they they didn't get it. They thought he was the Christ in the sense that he was going to establish the kingdom right then and now as a physical earthly kingdom. They didn't understand. Season two comes to a close, and they've been working their way toward Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's on the horizon, and they're about to enter Jerusalem. Okay, season three of Mark begins in chapter 11 with Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, if you remember, him entering Jerusalem on a donkey was fulfilling prophecy about the Messiah, the Christ, And as he came into Jerusalem, everybody celebrated him as the king. That's what Palm Sunday is about next week. And they gathered palm branches and put them down, and they shouted things like, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So the crowds were thinking, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the Christ. Maybe this is the Messiah. And yet they still didn't fully understand what he had to do to actually be the Christ and the Messiah. And so in season three, we see him go immediately through this uh, parade, this, this crowd of people celebrating him right to the temple. And there he does battle with his enemies, the religious establishment, the leaders, exposing their hypocrisy, exposing the corruption of the temple. And then the plot to kill him kicks into high gear. And we see the chief priests and the scribes and them start working together. How can we kill him? We've got to put a stop to Jesus. How can we do it? They get their opportunity when Judas comes to them ready to betray Jesus. Last week we saw the episode where he's arrested in the garden. And that brings us to today's episode. Now thank you for hanging with me through that lightning fast recap of the book of Mark. You're going to see in a minute why it's important for us to remember all this. Okay, so today's episode, the Jewish trial, starts in Mark chapter 14, verse 53. Everybody still with me? Okay. Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 53. 
Jesus has just been arrested by a mob of people sent by the religious leaders, his enemies. Verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. So this is, if you've read or watched the uh, Narnia books and movies, this is Aslan being brought to the, the witch and her minions, the white witch. Jesus has now been led into just the heart of the beast, of, the, of his enemies that want him killed. The high priest is the top of the org chart for the Jewish religious officials. He was the number one guy, the number one authority. And that's where they are. If this was a video game, this would be the big boss. You know, at the end of the video game, you work your way up to the really big name, the big nemesis. That's the high priest. Verse 54. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So here's Peter. We know what's about to happen with him. He's about to deny Jesus three times. He's cold. He's cold at night. Plus, he's probably still shaking from the adrenaline seeping out of his system from the arrest that just happened. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. So they're working hard to figure out a way to legitimately put Jesus to death. They've already decided this isn't a truth-seeking trial. They're not saying, maybe he is the Christ. Are you really the Christ? Give us some evidence. Let's weigh the, the evidence for it versus the evidence against. They're only seeking one kind of evidence, evidence that can convict him to death. And they're coming up short. They can't find any legitimate grounds because Jesus is completely innocent, sinless. So they're failing. They've got him in their clutches, but they're failing. They can't find a legitimate reason to put him to death. Verse 56, for many bore false witness against Jesus, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now, if you know your Bibles, Jesus did say similar things to this. In one instance, he, he talked about the temple as in his body, that it was going to be killed and brought back to life. And he also did talk about the temple, that one stone would not remain on top of the other, that it was going to be destroyed. But these testimonies didn't agree. It was just not enough substantive evidence for them to convict him to death as a terrorist. It was a big deal to talk about the temple in these ways. It had all the significance of the Vatican to Catholics and of the White House to Americans combined into one. So it was no small thing. They thought maybe we could trump up some charges here, like terrorism-related charges, and we can tell the Roman officials he's going to lead some sort of a terrorist revolt against the temple, and so you better kill him now before it gets real bad. But they just couldn't get all the evidence together. So then the high priest steps in, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus. So here's the highest authority among Jesus' enemies, the religious elite, the leaders of the Jewish people. He asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, 
And here we come to the crux of the matter. This is the most important part of the passage. So if you're getting sleepy, wake up right now. The high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Christ? Are you the long-awaited Savior King who will free God's people from their sins and usher in a new kingdom that presides over every kingdom and will last forever in which everything is right? Is that who you are? Are you God's Son? Jesus' answer is extremely important here in verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. Now, because we zoomed back and we looked at the book of Mark as a whole, we know that this is really significant. This is the point of the whole thing. Is Jesus the Christ? Everything hinges on this for you personally, as well as for the book of Mark. Peter rightly identified him as the Christ, and Jesus said, okay, shh, just don't say anything else to anybody else about it. Up to this point, Jesus has kind of kept it somewhat of a secret that he actually is the Christ. Why is he revealing it now? Why does he now say, yes, I am the Christ here in front of his enemies? Well, it seems to be the case from what we see through the rest of the book of Mark and in the rest of the New Testament that he is now free to do so without anyone misunderstanding what it means that he's the Christ. Now he can say it publicly, I am the Christ, and it's not going to get detached from what his true mission is. You see, these crowds were following Jesus not because they wanted the actual Christ, the Christ who would die for their sins so that they could be forgiven and reconciled to God. They wanted the Christ who was making miracle bread and feeding everyone's stomachs, who was making miracle wine at weddings when they ran out of wine, who was doing miraculous signs and providing a great spectacle, who was healing at people whenever they got sick. They liked that Jesus, but it turns out they really weren't that interested in the true Christ. And so Jesus didn't want it getting out. He didn't want everybody to realize this is it, this is him, and gather around him and clog him up from getting to what his mission actually requires. But now the wheels are in motion. He is in the grip of his enemies and he is headed toward the cross, which is the essential step he must take in order to be the Christ. And so now he's free to say, yes, I am the Christ. And he says more than that. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So he incriminates himself here. He says, yes, I am the Christ, But more than that, and he uses this language that these Jewish people would have absolutely understood to be connected with the Old Testament prophecies of the Christ. I'm going to read them to you briefly. One of them is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So that's one thing he's referencing. The other is Daniel 7, 13 through 14, which I read to you maybe last week, maybe the week before. It says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion would be an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is speaking their language, and he's saying, I am the Christ. I am the Son of the blessed, the Son of God. I am the Son of Man that was prophesied generations ago. And more than that, you will see it one day, and you will know. You will see me seated at the right hand of power. You will see that I come with divine power and authority and judgment upon my return. Now, this would have been shocking for these people because they did not believe in Jesus in this way, and that's why they respond the way they do in verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments. That's what you would do to express just extreme outrage. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. So they had what they needed. They couldn't get it from the false witnesses. They could only get it from Jesus' own mouth. He claimed to be God's son. He claimed to be the Messiah. They called it blasphemy, and they just swallowed him up with their abuse and their mockery. And that is the end of this episode as we read through the book of Mark. Now, there's many things that we could take from this. I just want to offer you a couple of reminders based on this. Really, one reminder with some implications of it. I just want to remind you again that Jesus is the Christ. That's who Jesus is. We are not free to make believe that Jesus is anything other than the Christ. The long-awaited Savior King who would free his people from their sins, reconciling them to God, and ushering in a new kingdom under his rule and reign, in which everything is made right. That's who he is. I want to remind you that Jesus came to solve our number one problem, which is sin. Nothing else can solve this problem. No one else can solve this problem. There will never be a new digital device that can solve this problem. There will never be an app that can solve this problem. No new, new wardrobe is not going to fix this for us. A new diet is not going to fix this. A new job is not going to fix this. No new laws that we could pass will fix this. More education, more money is not going to fix this. We invented things all through human history, made life a little bit better here and there, but it, it doesn't touch this problem. We invented the printing press, didn't fix this. We invented the computer, it didn't fix this. We invented the internet, it didn't fix it. Smartphones, Google, there's something called quantum computer and quantum internet coming. I don't even know what that is, but I can tell you it's not going to fix humanity's number one problem. You can build a wall between the United States and Mexico. It's not going to fix this. We can figure out an alternative energy source to oil. 
It's not going to fix humanity's number one problem. We can figure out immunotherapy that ends up curing cancer. It's not going to fix our number one problem. We can elect the ideal candidate that somehow both Republicans and Democrats all agree on in 2020. It's not going to fix our number one problem. Only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ fixes our number one problem, which is the sin that separates us from God, condemning us to eternity apart from him. Peter, who is the most likely source for Mark's material for his gospel, wrote this in 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I want to remind you that Jesus is the Christ. I want to remind you that there are many people that are just like the crowds in his day that just can't see him for who he is. They may be in this category of people Jeff talked about and they've heard of him and they know things about him, yet they can't see him for who he is. They may be trying to mold him into a Christ of their own making, a Christ of full stomachs, healed bodies, a Christ of material comforts in this world, but that's not who he is. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. I want to remind you that this is why we're praying so hard these days. It is a miracle when someone sees Christ as Christ. Many people are fans of Jesus and like the idea of Jesus, but it's a miracle when somebody has the spiritual eyes of their hearts enlightened and they can see him for who he is and they realize that this is what they've always needed, a savior from their sins. This is why we're praying so much. I want to remind you that there will always be people in the church that are like the high priests very, very close to the things of God and yet somehow not able to recognize Jesus Christ right in front of them. Matthew seven twenty one through 23, it, it echoes around in my mind all the time. That's why I've been reading it to you so much lately. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, referring to that day when he comes with the clouds and the power and the authority and the judgment of God himself, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your names? Wasn't I high priest? Didn't I go to church? Wasn't I more morally upright than my neighbor down the street? Didn't my family build that church? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's only Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. Church makes no sense except in that we are trusting and following Jesus Christ together. Not heritage, not comparisons with anybody else. Not even being high priest. 
I want to remind you that he is the Christ. I want to remind you that he is coming back. He's not going to come back like a baby in a manger. He's not going to come back a suffering servant on the cross. He's going to come back in the power and the authority and the judgment of God himself. Philippians 2, 6-7 captures the whole picture pretty well. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. It'll be a sweet day of vindication for God's people that we, we were right to put all our eggs in this basket of Jesus Christ. We were right to let him reorient our priorities and to miss some of the worldly fleeting pleasures in pursuit of something far greater an eternity with God. But it'll be a day of horror and judgment for those apart from Jesus Christ, those outside of Jesus Christ. I mean, the seriousness of it is, so I, I can't even feel it fully. And we don't know when he's coming back. The urgency of evangelism is so serious. And we have what people need. They don't know that that's what they need. Nobody thinks they need the Christ, the, the Jewish Messiah, until they are told the good news that in him their sins are forgiven and they can be reconciled to a holy God. So we need to pray. It's miracle stuff. It's a miracle that any of us had our eyes opened to Jesus Christ. It will be a miracle when he breaks through the hard-heartedness of our loved ones and does the same thing for them. So we need to pray. I'm going to close in a way that I almost never do with an altar call. And this isn't an emotional, we're not going to stop singing the closing hymn until everybody's up here crying altar call. This is a time that we can pray together. And I'm not going to disturb you as you're praying and come. Uh, I'll be glad to pray with you if you'd like me to. But it's a chance for us to respond to God's word. In light of what we've read in Mark and these other passages, let's renew our faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. He is the Christ. Let's renew our focus on trusting in him and following him personally. Let's repent of any sin that maybe has accumulated in our life and receive the forgiveness that he bought for us on the cross. Some of you perhaps have some sin that has trailed behind you into the church pew, some lingering things said, things done, things looked at that you have not dealt with between you and the Lord. Jesus Christ paid for that. You do not have to live under guilt and condemnation of that. You can go to him in prayer and just confess all that to him, receive his forgiveness and the power to repent and turn and forsake that sin. Perhaps you, you have someone weighing heavily on your mind and your heart, a loved one that you know has not trusted in Jesus Christ, is without a Savior, and will be one of those cast away when Jesus returns. And perhaps you just want to come and lift them up to the Lord in prayer. It's a chance to examine ourselves, make sure we're not like that high priest, blind, blind to our own spiritual darkness. It's a chance for us to prayerfully prepare ourselves for his return. 
Because who knows, he could return before we come together again next week. So we'll pray together. I'm going to pray for us now, and I'll invite uh, Rhonda to come, and we'll sing together. And anyone who would like to come and pray at the front of the church may do so. I do want, one reason I don't do a lot of altar calls, there is nothing magical. I hate to even call it an altar. There's nothing magical about coming up here to pray. You can pray where you are, and God is every bit as much present, and Jesus is every bit as much interceding for you. But sometimes it's helpful to physically go someplace different from where you've been sitting and where you've been. It helps you to concentrate. It helps you to be serious about your praying. It helps sometimes to, to assume the posture of getting on our knees in humility before the Lord. So that's, that's what I'm inviting you to, not to a magic place. God's not closer to here than he is to there. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'm going to pray for us and then invite Rhonda to come. We'll sing together and pray together to close our service. Father, thank you for your word and for the reminder that Jesus Christ is the Christ. And thank you for opening our eyes to that fact. Lord, please lead us now how you would have us to pray, how you'd have us to respond, each individual one and us all together as a church. We look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.